Thank you very much, and good afternoon, everyone. It is a pleasure to be back with you. Um, as you all are aware, we've been traveling a bit, or I have. Um, I might add one thing to what uh, Mr. Ames just mentioned. <clears throat> My uh, daughter-in-law sent a, an email yesterday that uh, there were three bombings in Manila. I guess it would be uh, Thursday their time. Uh, one of which was in Makati City, which is um, where they live. And it was in a mall where they regularly shop. They shop for groceries in, in a, super, a supermarket in this mall as well as other uh, items. So uh, less than two weeks ago, I was in this mall with them, and uh, <clears throat> it was quite busy. Uh, the militant factions in the Philippine Islands are uh, both Islamic or Muslim. MILF is the Muslim Islamic uh, faction which is uh, very militant toward the current government and also then there is the communist faction. They, while we were in, while I was in the Philippines and while we were conducting meetings in Davao, which is in Mindanao, uh, there was a call on the part of the MILF for all of uh, the groups to uh, uh, combine together to kill all Americans. Makes you feel real comfortable to know that you've been singled out and had special recognition when you're in a country like that. <clears throat> um, anyway, uh, we're living in very difficult times, and certainly I think troublous times are going to increase as uh, we, uh, I think, are seeing clearly in the news. A few weeks ago, I toured the MacArthur Suite in the Manila Hotel. It's down on the waterfront uh, on the bay as you're looking to the west. And um, the, the uh, Manila Hotel has rebuilt... Uh, the MacArthur suite, which was destroyed or damaged uh, at severely and I think essentially destroyed during the war. General MacArthur, when he went to the Philippines in 1935 to uh, rebuild the uh, Philippine military, asked <coughs> that he move into the presidential palace, but uh, he was denied that privilege. I think the Philippine government uh, realized uh, that uh, this wouldn't look very good. And uh, so MacArthur asked this, uh, that they build a duplicate suite in this hotel, a Manila hotel, exactly like that of the president. And they did. Of course, <clears throat> Japanese laborers worked on a lot of these projects during that period of time, this is like 1935, and already at this period or at this time in, in history, uh, the Japanese were aware that they probably would be going to war against uh, us in the Philippine Islands. They had spies, they had people who were working in the Philippines during this period of time, as laborers on projects which were 
uh, a part of the work that General MacArthur was directing. As a matter of fact, the um, fortress uh, Corregidor Island uh, had uh, many Japanese nationals who later were known to, to have been mili high military persons who were there as uh, moles working as laborers so that they could know exactly what the installation was like. There's a story told uh, when you, uh, if you go to, to the um, uh, island of Corregidor, there's a story told that <clears throat> when the Japanese were bombing Corregidor, General MacArthur was, uh, was, uh, had his headquarters on what is called Topside, um, which is up on the hump. The uh, island of Corregidor is like a tadpole-shaped island with the head out into the South China Sea and the tail back into uh, Manila Bay. And it lies just very close offshore from the tip of the peninsula of Bataan. Uh, General MacArthur <coughs> had his headquarters up on topside, and um, uh, there was a long row of buildings, barracks, and, and offices. Uh, and then uh, there was to the uh, uh, parallel, I'm sorry, uh, perpendicular to that long row of barracks and offices was a large installation office building. Uh, for meetings and that sort of thing. General MacArthur was standing on the steps of this uh, perpendicular uh, wing when the Japanese bombed his headquarters and they targeted specifically the headquarters of General MacArthur because they knew exactly where it was. And he stood on the steps watching as his headquarters was totally demolished. The bombers were passing over, dropping their bombs, concentrating on that office uh, facility. Shortly after he walked away from those steps, another aircraft reportedly came through and uh, machine-gunned those steps and killed the man who uh, succeeded him by or followed him by something like 10 or 12 yards. General MacArthur was quite a, an egotistical man. He um, <clears throat> he believed very firmly in uh, theater, uh, high profile. Uh, he was very theatrical in many, many ways. He had a giant ego. General MacArthur, however, was a man of great courage, as evidenced by uh, many, many physical manifestations. He had a Purple Heart injured. Uh, he was injured in World War One. He also had uh, numerous medals for bravery from World War One and World War Two. He uh, had the Medal of Honor, uh, the highest medal that can be uh, given to a uh, uh, military person. Uh, from the United States government. So he was a very brave man. He was a man of great courage, uh, a man who had a determination to fulfill on what he viewed to be his duty. He believed in duty and honor above virtually all else in his life. But he was a man of great ego. He was a man with a big heart. He, had, he was a man of courage. 
Now, we're facing times, as was pointed out in the sermonette, we're facing times that are not really that promising, uh, very difficult times. We are on the verge of a great tribulation, which is about to engulf not just our country and, and uh, uh, our, uh, the uh, other Israelite nations, but the entire world. We're facing a time of great peril. And it is a time which is going to try men's hearts. And men will, we will see, will lose heart, and in some cases their hearts will fail them for fear or terror because of the awful sights they're going to see. Heart implies courage. The very word courage has implicit within the word itself, cœur, which is French for heart. Uh, core, it come, I think there's a Latin, uh, probably originally uh, perhaps a Greek uh, root, uh, but uh, courage comes from having strength of heart. Everybody loves a hero. Currently, there are cowardly elements in society, particularly right now in, in uh, the Philippine Islands. We uh, have witnessed individuals who are acting as uh, militant cowards. While I was in the Philippines, there were something like uh, 20... Uh, let's see, I think it was 29 in one group who had been kidnapped by the um, militant Islamic group. And there was another group of 17, as I recall, who had been kidnapped or were kidnapped, kidnapped by a, a separate group, but also Islamic. These people were, are, are viewed as outcasts by the Islamic community in the Philippines. They uh, are not viewed as heroes. They are not viewed as uh, courageous warriors at all. On the president's birthday, I think it was May the 5th, if I recall, they beheaded two of their hostages as a, quote, birthday gift to the president. Real men, wouldn't you say? Real courage. And as a result, the president and his cabinet de decided these people are, are so obviously so barbaric that they had no choice but to take some military action because these people were saying that for every period of time or delay, they would execute more of these women and children and staff people from this school. There was a Catholic priest and a nun among the leaders of uh, this school, which uh, were uh, hostages. They tortured the Catholic priest and the nun indescribably. And uh, while I was there, their bodies were recovered by the military. And it was clear that they had been tortured because their wounds clearly demonstrated that they had lived for some time and then were later executed. 
or killed by their captors. Not nice people. And to my knowledge, they still hold something like two dozen hostages. Um, while the international community, the United States and the European states, were counseling the military, the government of the Philippines, to be nice to these people and try to negotiate, the Philippine cabinet and the president met and they determined unilaterally to continue the military action against these people because they understand these people are not normal people. They're dealing with criminals. They don't have the same restraints of conscience that normal people have. Now, if they were normal people, they would not be using men, women, helpless men and women and little children as human shields between themselves and the authorities. So these people don't elicit a sense of respect from normal human people, men of, and women of conscience. But men and women of courage inspire us to endure hardships and persevere against insurmountable difficulties while cowards are repugnant and abhorrent to us. The Bible, of course, is filled with uh, examples, biblical examples of individuals, men and women, who were persons of great courage. Job has a reputation of being self-righteous. But Job, I think, needs to be uh, respected because in spite of the uh, fact that Job had, uh, had a problem, Job was a man of great courage in my judgment. We read that in the beginning of Job, that there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, Job 1.1. And one that feared God and eschewed or hated evil. Now, I think those are strong, wonderful attributes. Those are attributes of a courageous man. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses, and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. He was a wealthy man. And his sons went out and feasted in their houses, every one on his day, and sent and said, uh, call for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And so it was. On one of these days when they were feasting, Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings <clears throat> according to the uh, number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. 
So Job was not only concerned about worshiping God, showing his trust and his fear of God and his respect for God, but he was also concerned for his children. And he was aware that his children might not reflect the same spirit and attitude and obedience that he did. Thus did Job continually. That is, it was a custom, it was a practice of Job. He was concerned about other people, particularly those in his family. And now, verse 6, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Eternal, and Satan came also among them. You know the rest of the story, how Satan uh, spoke to God about, uh, uh, came before God, and God said to Satan, uh, have you observed my servant Job and how uh, righteous he is and how, how uh, God was uh, upholding Job? God was, was uh, uh, very complimentary of his servant Job. And, of course, Satan said, yeah, but he doesn't do this for naught. You know and I know we know that uh, he does it for his own uh, selfish good, for his own personal reasons. Let's go to chapter 13 and let's notice uh, something verse 15 that I think will illustrate that Job was in actual fact a man of great courage in God's sight in Job chapter 13 uh, <clears throat> Job is speaking and uh, picking up uh, let's say about Verse 14, verse 13, Hold your peace, let me alone, that I may speak, and let uh, come on me what will, Job says. Wherefore do I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, verse 14, though he slay me, speaking of God, yet will I trust in him. And I will maintain mine own ways before him. He shall also be my salvation, for an hypocrite shall not come before him. Now, check the commentaries. I think I checked Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. And uh, the commentary indicates that this could be translated a little differently with uh, perhaps a superior thought and understanding what Job was saying and what he meant. Though he slay me, translated, though he slay me, and I dare no more hope, yet I will maintain, that is, I desire to vindicate myself before him. I desire to vindicate myself before him as not a hypocrite. Job's objective, even in the face of sure death, as he, I think, saw the, it before him, Job's objective was to demonstrate before God that he was not an hypocrite. God knew that. God knew that Job was not an hypocrite. But Job felt he had to demonstrate to God that he was not hypocritical. 
in actual fact, only those his friends were the ones who were of the opinion that he was an hypocrite because they didn't really know the man's heart. I think Job was a great man <clears throat> of courage, and I think that he demonstrated his courage by standing pat, by standing firm. Now, he did not understand his real problem, but at least in those areas he did understand he was loyal, he was faithful, and he was not an hypocrite. Back in Exodus, we find that God's heart is, uh, is demonstrated. God is uh, a, a God of great courage when you think about what God has done. Jesus Christ, of course, was the God of the Old Testament. We understand, but the world doesn't understand that. And so the world views the God of the Old Testament as that God of the Ten Commandments who demanded obedience or else he would come upon people with wrath and retribution. In Exodus chapter 34, the Lord said unto Moses, verse 1, Hew two tables of stone like unto the first. Now, if you recall, uh, Moses, uh, when he first received the Ten Commandments, they were, the two tablets were hewn by God. And they were written by the finger of God. Moses broke those. So God uh, let Moses himself do the work in hewing the second set of tablets. And then God wrote accordingly. Be ready in the morning. Come up in the morning unto Mount Sinai and present yourself to me in the top of the mount. And no man shall come up with you, neither let any man be seen throughout all the mount. Neither let the flocks nor herds feed before that mount. And he hewed two tables of stone like unto the first. He, that is, Moses did. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up unto Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tables of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Eternal. And the Eternal passed by before him and proclaimed the, the Eternal, the Eternal God, merciful and gracious. Verse 6, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children under the third and to the fourth generation. And Moses bowed down quickly when God spoke to him. Now, God is in, has, has proclaimed or expressed his character to Moses. He is a God of mercy, a God of compassion, but a God who does not overlook sin. He by no means clears the guilty. That is, those who are unrepentant, as we'll see by other examples. 
verse 10. And he said, Behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among which you are shall see the work of the eternal, for it is a terrible thing that I will do with you. Now the commentaries uh, have some have a problem uh, with that particular uh, uh, particular statement because they see that God, uh, when God has uh, intervened in the affairs of men, that sometimes uh, <clears throat> He has dealt with with men very severely. Um, one commentator tries to explain this way by saying that he is saying that he makes Moses uh, that it's in Moses that he is speaking let me cite it precisely so that you can get it uh, from the commentator himself at an earlier period he had announced himself to Moses in the glory of his self-existent and eternal majesty as I am. Now he makes himself known in the glory of his grace and goodness attributes that were to be illustriously displayed in the future history and experience of the church. Being about to republish his law, the sin of Israelites being forgiven, and the deed of pardon about to be signed and sealed by renewing the terms of the former covenant, it was the most fitting time to proclaim the extent of the divine mercy which was to be displayed, not in the case of Israel only, but of all who offend. Um, this is not the uh, exact uh, quote that I had in mind, but I guess I didn't uh, uh, copy out the quote where he's trying to say that God is saying that it was in Moses that these signs, these terrible signs would be portrayed or demonstrated. Others, uh, of course, uh, uh, I, I, it's, uh, here it is. For this, it is a terrible thing that I will do with you. One rabbi restrains this to Moses' person. This is a quote. Abba Abin Ezra restrains this to Moses' person and interprets this of the wonderful shining of the skin of his face when he came down from the mount which made the children of Israel afraid to come near to him and of his vigorous constitution at the time of his death when his eye was not dim nor his natural forces abated contrary to the nature of ancient persons but it is better to understand it of the ministry of Moses and of the awful things that God would do by him again because they are they are trying to say well God would not do these these uh, quote awful terrible things uh, it was by Moses and that kind of removes God one step and therefore we can justify God I presume that seems to be the thought now maybe that maybe I'm missing their point I don't know other commentators say, though, <clears throat> that uh, uh, rather of the people of Israel, among whom and for whose sake God would do such things as should cause a panic among the nations all around them. Now, I think that is particularly true. 
that what God was saying was that he would do in advance of the children of Israel's movement into the land, that God would do things which would terrify and, and cause panic among the people. The objective being that either they would flee, which many of them, I, I think, did, or else they would be uh, so weakened by their terror that then they, were, uh, they would be destroyed before the children of Israel, which they were. This idea that God is such a uh, harsh, stern God, unforgiving God, that is the God of the Old Testament, is one that has always troubled me. How, how people could uh, uh, come to that kind of a conclusion and, and view the God of the Old Testament, even if they didn't know that it was the one who became Jesus Christ, as we understand John clearly says in John chapter 1. Um, I think they, they simply do not read the book. Let's take the example of Korah in Numbers chapter 16. In Numbers chapter 16, <clears throat> now there was a man by the name of Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, son of Levi. So he was a Levite. And Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliah, and On, the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben. They took men, and they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown, or title, I think it could be translated, titled men, men, men who were chiefs uh, or uh, princes among the people. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, 250, boy, the, the, um, <clears throat> these were real brave men, weren't they? 250 to 2, assuming that they were coming bef uh, or perceived that they would be uh, approaching both Moses and Aaron. 250, and they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, You take too much upon you seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore, then lift you up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. Now Moses <clears throat> was such a weakling that when he heard it, he fell upon his face, verse 4 says. Is that what that means? Not on your life. Moses didn't fall on his face because he was fearful of these men. Moses fell on his face because he feared God and he knew what a horrible offense these men were committing against Almighty God. And in his fear and reverence for God, Moses fell on his face before God, not these men. Because he saw, he knew what they deserved. And he spoke unto Korah and to all the company, saying, <clears throat> Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his and who is holy, 
and will cause to come near unto him, even him whom he hath chosen, will he cause to come near unto him. You do this. So Moses gave command. And uh, so Moses wasn't weak. Moses was a man of courage, but he was also a man who feared and respected the awesome power of Almighty God. And what an incredible affront these men were committing. You know the rest of the story and how they later were uh, consumed. Come down to verse 31. <clears throat> and it came to pass, as he had made an end of speaking of these all these words, that the ground clave asunder and was under them, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up, and their houses, and all the men that pertained appertained unto Korah, and all their goods. They and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. And all Israel that were round about them fled at the cry of them, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up also. And there came out a fire from the Lord and assumed the 250 men that uh, offered incense. So Korah and Dathan and Barum, they, they and that which appertained to them were, were consumed. But let's go on over to uh, chapter 26, verse 11. <clears throat> let's see. Let's start to uh, get the thought here. Uh, these are the sons of Palu. Now, let's go back. Verse 7. These are the, the families of the Reubenites, and they were numbered of them 43,700. The sons of Palu, Eliab, sons of Eliab, uh, Nemuel, and Dathan and Abiram. This is that Dathan and Abiram, which were famous in the congregation, who strove against Moses and against Aaron in the company of Korah when they strove against the Lord. And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah when that company died, what time the fire devoured 250 men and they became a sign. Verse 11. Notwithstanding, the children of Korah died not. Now, the children of Korah were three sons, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. Their descendants were prominent in the temple worship later. And... Guess what? Samuel was a descendant of one of the sons of Korah. The prophet Samuel was a descendant. First Chronicles chapter 6, verse 33. I won't turn there, but you can check it and read it later. Now, the idea is that all of Korah's household, family, which would include his children, were destroyed because of God's wrath against Korah and his leadership and his rebellion. But I have to take it that 
those who were not a part of, that family members who are not a part of a rebellion such as Korah's against God were judged by God according to their individual deeds and not according to those of their father. And I take it that Almighty God, when it says that he, he visits the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the second and third generation of those who hate him, notice the qualifier. It is of those who hate him because it goes on until that generation literally is, is, uh, is exterminated until they are gone. Those who hate God, those who, who persist, are going to be consumed. But those who repent and those who trust God find that God is God of courage and of mercy because the two go together. It takes courage to be merciful. It takes courage to step up and accept an individual who has spat in your face, who has smitten you, uh, stabbed you in the back, whatever it may be. It takes a lot more courage, as God has demonstrated, to forgive than to destroy. The, the Old Testament is filled with examples of God's forgiveness, His mercy. Psalm 62, in Psalm chapter 62, uh, starting in verse uh, 8. <clears throat> Psalm 62 and verse 8, trust in him, referring to God, obviously to God, who is my, the rock of my strength, my refuge, as he has said earlier. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And every time we are fearful to, to do the right thing, to make the right decisions, for fear that there will be some retribution or some pain or some, some uh, suffering that we may endure because of that, we need to look at the example of God and what he has commanded and what he has said. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him, because God is a refuge for us. Surely men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a lie to be laid in the balance. That is, low and high, you can't trust in men, because men are not your refuge. I mean, this seems to be the implication. We don't put our trust in man, whether it's another man or our own selves. Trust not in oppression, and become not vain in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. God has spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongs unto God. Also unto thee, O Lord, belongs mercy. 
for you render to every man according to his work. Verse 12. That's the test. God renders to every man according to his work. There's, uh, there are some New Testament scriptures <clears throat> which parallel this and, in effect, uh, rephrase this in a different way. You know, the church at Corinth had a major, major problem. The church at Corinth, being a Gentile church, had a very liberal attitude towards some sins. And they also had uh, some problems with respect of persons uh, and, and a lot of other problems in the church at Corinth. But one of the problems that they had, that is being too liberal in their thinking toward this man who was living with his stepmother who had taken away his stepmother from his father, was that after it was pointed out to them that they had sinned and how wrong they were and that they had better take charge and, and resolve this matter, and they did, and after the man repented, they neglected or refused to forgive him. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts the, the letter in which he, he deals with their lack of forgiveness and their lack of responsiveness to this man after he had repented was very beginning, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God is tender-hearted toward us. Now then, when we have forgiveness extended to us, for our sins, then how can we refuse to extend forgiveness to others for theirs? Especially, of course, if those sins are against our person. <clears throat> so God, through Paul, demonstrates the importance that it is incumbent upon us to be forgiving and to extend mercy toward others. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Blessed be the eternal God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. Now, this is in the beginning, and you understand that Luke is describing here what the people were being, what Mary was being told and what Elizabeth was being told, and those who were, uh, who were working with the, uh, them, and then later what John, John the Baptist, saw and what, what the people were being told by him. Backing up, you wish. 
verse 63, uh, Zechariah asked for a writing table and, <clears throat> or tablet, and he wrote, saying that the, the baby's name is John, and they marveled. And his mouth was opened immediately, verse 64, and his tongue loosed, and he spake and praised God. You remember he had been struck dumb from the time that, that it had been announced that his wife would have a, a, a child. And fear came on all them that dwelt round about them, and all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judas, Judea. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of Lord, the Lord was with him. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Verse 68, Blessed be the God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the home of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. He's pointing toward the uh, birth, the, the coming of Jesus Christ. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he sware to our father Abraham that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him, God, without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And then he speaks specifically, you shall be called a prophet of the highest for you shall go before the face of the eternal to prepare, prepare his ways. So he's, he's, he's prophesying both of the child, John, and what he would do, and, of course, ultimately of Christ and his ministry. God in his mercy, God in his mercy fulfilled the promise that he gave to Abraham. Of Abraham, his seed, one would come through whom mercy would be extended. The tender mercy of God would be extended. <clears throat> not just to his seed, but to all the world. You know, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul is a man who's held up very, in high, very high esteem by Protestant theologians as a man who, of course, liberated... Uh, liberated the church from the Judaism as they view it of, of the apostolic church the law and yet the apostle Paul in all of his statements about God the God of the Old Testament without regard to who he was whether without regard to whether he was the one who became Jesus or the Father. Okay? Let's disregard that. Every reference of the Apostle Paul toward God shows a respect for his mercy. His love, his mercy, his long-suffering kindness, his patience. Not the picture 
that critical theologians want you to, to see in Paul's writings. Recently, there have been a few scholars, who, honest scholars, who have stepped forward and who have, who have honestly stated that the Apostle Paul's, how Paul's writings and how Paul's teaching have been characterized as being opposed to the law totally, totally without foundation. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> Titus chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul said to Titus, put them, the people, in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. Now, again, back in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 1, what I was reading in, in Luke 1 was pointing toward the extension of God's mercy and kindness in giving himself, in giving the sacrifice for mankind, which would redeem man. Buy him back from the hand of Satan, to whom we all sold ourselves. Luke's account is pointing toward that, the, the extension of mercy which God gave in allowing God the Father and God the the God of the Old Testament, the, the Word, in giving this sacrifice for us at Passover time. Do we, do we really understand, can we grasp the magnitude of God the Father's gift in allowing the one who had been with him for all eternity past as a sacrifice for us? to turn his back, as it were, on the one who had been with him for all eternity, the one who had created this creation here that we enjoy, and created Adam and Eve and, their, and ultimately all of us. I don't think we can appreciate the magnitude of the gift of God our Father. I have three sons, and I, there is not one I think I could turn my back on and, uh, and, <clears throat> and let him suffer the indignities and the horrors of a crucifixion. I don't have that in me. Certainly not for you. And I don't know anybody else I could do it for. I mean, my son or my daughter... I, I don't know how I could do that. I think I could possibly, just maybe, screw up enough courage to do it myself for you, but I don't think I could do, I don't think I could sacrifice my son or my daughter for you. 
You're not that important to me. Not any of you. Does that make sense? Which of your children could you turn your back on and allow to go through the horrible experience of crucifixion if you had the power to intervene and stop it? I don't think I have it in me. Just don't have it in me. But after the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, not, not something we have done, but according to His mercy toward us. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, showing the operation of God the Father who was involved in this process, not just Christ alone. That being justified by grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And, of course, that was the objective, that God would have many sons, not just one. This is a faithful saying. And these things I will that you affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. Have you heard or seen any of this recently? What is that all going on on the Internet but... Uh, let's see, what does he call it? Foolish questions, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law or about the calendar or about uh, whatever. For they are unprofitable and vain. And those individuals who spend all of their time and nothing but their time on those vain things are described in verse 10 as what? A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject. All too many of them are nothing but heretics. They are not. They are not sincere. Not all of them. Some of them may be sincere, but not all of them are sincere, unfortunately. Knowing that he that is such is subverted in sins, being condemned of himself, You know, <clears throat> Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, and comment on this, says you stand aloof from them because these, um, these foolish questions are, as he in the Greek implies, they are insipid. I like that. They are insipid. They have no substance. They, they don't go anywhere. It's like the... the, the the controversy over the Passover, whether it's 14th or 15th, whether the original Passover was on the 14th, beginning of the 14th at the evening before, or as the Jews came to observe it on the afternoon of the killing, the Passover on the afternoon of the 15th and 14th and eating it on the 15th. Some 20, uh, what is it now, 70, 80, 90, 27 years ago, 28 years ago, that question was brought up, 
in a <coughs> regional director's conference in Pasadena. And uh, the director of church administration at the time presented a paper which had been submitted on this matter. And he asked our input and our discussion and our review. And he and I took a walk after during a break. And I said to him, tell me, uh, when did Jesus observe his last Passover with his disciples? Well, it was the night before the Jews' Passover. That was on the beginning of the 14th. Right. And Paul said that we're to uh, follow that example. Right. Okay. So clearly then <clears throat> the New Testament Passover was at the beginning of the 14th. Right? Right. And I said, so the only question is an academic one about whether or not the original Passover was on the uh, that same time or whether it was uh, later filled in the afternoon of the 14th and eaten on the 15th, right? Right. So I said, now then, well, if we accept the argument in this paper that, uh, that the Jews are right, then uh, even if we accept that, does it mean that we change and start keeping the Passover on the night of the 15th? No. He said, no. I said, well, then, why don't you just drop it? Because it is going nowhere. It, it will take us nowhere. All it will do is engender strife, contention, and argumentation. It's insipid. And to his credit, you know what he said? He said, you're right, Carl. And he dropped it. That was 28 years ago. <clears throat> but that thing keeps coming up and again and again and again. And it is insipid. It has no merit. It has no basis. It has no substance. The argument is moot. Regardless of what I think about it or what you think about it, Christ's Passover was at the beginning of the 14th after sunset that night, and it cannot be argued away. So let's follow his example. Genealogies, that is, according to JF and B, fables. Not so much direct heresy as yet is here referred to as profitless discussions about genealogies of ages, like calendar calculations and such, perhaps, which ultimately led to Gnosticism. Synagogue discourses were termed, uh, the Greek word D-A-R-A-S-C-H-O-T-H, that is, discussions. The, the synagogue, I guess that must be from the Hebrew, there's quote, meaning discussions. So what he is saying here is that that the synagogue uh, this, uh, discourses were, uh, what he is defining here is disputations or arguments in the synagogue because they had a much more open type service where there was a, the reading of a scripture and a give and take discussion. Uh, apparently, they also had sermonizing as well, but this was allowed in certain of the synagogues. Strivings about the law are about the authority of the commandments of men, he says, the commandments of men, which they sought to confirm by the law. You see, not not that 
whether the Ten Commandments, God's law, were... They weren't even arguing about that initially. Gnosticism, the beginning of Gnosticism was simply the, the arguing about the application of the laws which men had generated. They weren't about the Ten Commandments of God. And scholars know this. The prophet Jeremiah lived in a very troublous time, much like what we're perhaps facing within a few years of us, just ahead of us, I suspect. <clears throat> and the prophet Jeremiah was used by God to warn, to counsel, to advise God's people not just for that age, but for, for today and for the future. Jeremiah chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 2. Jeremiah wrote that God spoke to him, came to him and spoke, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Eternal, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your espousals, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land that was not sown. God goes all the way back to the beginning of nationhood. Israel was holiness unto the eternal, and the first fruits of his increase, all that devour him, shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. Hear you the word of the eternal house of Jacob. That is, the entirety of Israel, Judah, as well as the other parts, uh, tribes of Israel. O house of Jacob and all the families of the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord, verse 5, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain? What, what was wrong with God's way? What was wrong with God's law? What was wrong with what God gave them? He gave them a beautiful land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land which they did not earn, houses to possess which they didn't build. God gave them everything that they had, and it was good. What was wrong with God's gift? What was wrong with God's mercy? Verse 6, Neither said they, Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, through a land of de deserts and uh, pits, through a land of drought and shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through, and where no man dwelt? You know the, uh, <clears throat> the different ideas about the exodus. They all tried to, uh, uh, they all tried to, to, uh, to put the uh, exodus through some some way whereby there was a trail, there was a, uh, uh, some form of transport or uh, commerce. But Jeremiah says that where they went was through a land that no man passed through. They went through the wilderness. They went through the desert part, not the areas where the... Uh, Oasis existed and where the water holes were all 
neatly placed. And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof, but when you entered, you defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination. The priests didn't say, where is the eternal? And they that handled the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Okay, now that's the history. That's real. That's the way it is or was. It's not deniable. Wherefore, verse 9, Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. Now, does that sound to you like a, a harsh, stern God who's just ready to s s zap anybody and everybody who steps out of line the least bit? Doesn't to me. Yet I plead with you, for pass over the isles of Kittim, and see, and send unto Kedar, and consider diligently, and see if there be such a thing. Has a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. Be astonished, O you heavens, at this, and horribly afraid. Be you desolate, saith the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out to themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They forsook the one who had life. They forsook him, and then they developed a, in effect, a system whereby they said they had life, but there was no life in it. Two evils. Now then, <clears throat> in our time, very recently, we have had friends and loved ones who have forsaken God cisterns of or fountains of living waters and they have hewn out cisterns that can hold no water now how how are we to view them how are we to view our friends and loved ones who are out there in the wilderness as it were notice verse 14 is Israel a servant is he a home-born slave? Why is he spoiled? The young lions roared upon him and yelled, and they made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. Also, the children of Penis have broken the crown of your head. Hast thou not procured this unto yourself, in that you have forsaken the eternal your God when he led you by the way? God asks. And now... What have you to do in the way of Egypt to drink the waters of Sior? Or what hast thou to do in the way of Assyria to drink the waters of the river, the Euphrates, or whatever? Thine own wickedness shall correct you, and your backsliding shall reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that you have forsaken the Lord your God, and that my fear is not in you, saith the Lord of hosts." Your own ways will correct you. Now, I submit to you that 
our own ways will correct us, our people, our nation, and all the nations of Israel in the end time because we have forsaken God. Not only will our ways precipitate our destruction, but those who destroy the nations of Israel themselves will be corrected because of the manner in which they do the job. Because they are not without sin as well. Recently there was an article I picked off of uh, the news. <clears throat> an article concerning German military facing radical restructuring. They are re, uh, they're going back to the old model. Uh, they're forsaking the uh, model that uh, they have had since World War II where they have primarily conscripts in the military. They're going back to the professional army. And they are furthermore restructuring it so that they have what is, what is called a rapid deployment force, RDF, whereby they can have all, well, a couple hundred thousand perhaps, uh, just professional soldiers uh, who have, as the, the article speaks for itself, uh, they are not tied to the civilian uh, side of Germany, of the country and, and the populace so much. I'll, if you'd like to read the article, you're welcome to. I'll show it. I'll have it after services. It's, it's, it's coming, friends. It, it's, uh, it's there. It's coming. Around the, it's here. And there's discussion back and forth. And you know, listen to the final paragraph of this news report. An independent German cap uh, Germany, a German capability will accelerate the drive by France for a European-level armed force as an attempt to increase Paris's control over the Bundeswehr, that is the German army. Conflicting priorities, as well as the Bundeswehr's Desperate attempts to maintain its viability in the face of the budget acts will cause tensions as Germans, Germany's military attempts to create its independence at the same time France tries to curtail it because they haven't forgotten World War II. Another news release, the European Trade Offensive in Latin America. They, like Blitzkrieg, they developed a treaty with Mexico in order to circumvent any tax tariffs in order to get their goods into the United States through NAFTA. Read the article. We are losing, brethren. The United States is occupied with all kinds of nonsensical stuff going on in the White House. Nonsensical, stupid stuff that is going on in the White House. And, uh, and in, among congressmen, I mean, you don't even want to know all the stuff that is going on in our leaders. And the reason why they have no strength 
They cannot stand up and deal with the problems even when they see it because they themselves are vulnerable. They're guilty of the same thing, and when they speak up, it comes out again and again and again. But God is merciful. <clears throat> Consider, mercy is used in the Bible, the whole Bible, 261 times. Out of that 261 times, 208 times it's used in the Old Testament. Mercy, the word, the expression, mercy. It's 208 times in the Old Testament, 54 times in the New Testament. Nine of those times are in Matthew, two times in Mark, 12 times in Luke, not one time in John. Now in Paul's epistles, it's used nine times in Romans, two times in 1 Corinthians, one in Galatians, one in Ephesians, one in Philippians, one in 1 Timothy, two, I'm sorry, three in 1 Timothy, and two times in 2 Timothy. It's used twice in Titus, twice in Hebrews. And in the general epistles, it's used three times in James, and two times in 1 Peter, and one time in 2 John, and twice in Jude. A total of 54 times. The expression, His mercy, is used in the Bible 54 times. 50 times of which it is in the Old Testament. Only four times is His mercy referred to in the New Testament. And three of those times, it is referring to the God of the Old Testament. Isn't that interesting? When it speaks of His mercy, it is speaking of the Almighty God of the Old Testament as a merciful God. If we understand that Jesus was and is God of the Old Testament, who came to reveal the Father, then the entire perspective on the one God of Israel who interacted with the patriarchs throughout the ages somewhat changes, doesn't it? It is referring to Christ throughout, as well as through Christ, because he spoke for the Father, he reflected the Father, he represented the Father, it also points toward God our Father, who is a God of mercy, God of love, patient. I didn't read to you. The 136th Psalm, I recommend you do. For the sake of time, we can't do it today. How His mercy endures forever. How His mercy it has been extended to us again and again and again and again. If one denies that Jesus, who was the God of, the, of, of Israel, who came to reveal the Father... Uh, if one accepts that, that, then one has to still recognize the God of the Old Testament was a loving, merciful God and not the epitome of harshness which the critics and ignorant perceive him to be. Great is his mercy, and his mercy endures forever. <clears throat> he is our worshipful hero. And his ego was emptied. That's what Paul said. He divested himself. He emptied himself of his divinity. If there was any ego 
I mean, we, we looked at, we, we talked about MacArthur, and here was a man who was a man of courage, a great deal of courage and, and a sense of duty, but he had a humongous ego, which is even today spoken of in the Philippines by the Filipinos. They saw it, they, uh, they experienced it. And they laugh about it to this day. But God emptied himself of any ego in order to serve humanity and offer salvation to all who have ever lived, including us. He is the one of great courage. You know, it took a great deal of courage <clears throat> for him, knowing in advance what he was facing when he became human, came to this earth, went through this human experience, and, and knowing that he would be hanged on the cross, crucified uh, as he was to be, knowing all that took a great deal of courage. He's not the insipid one who died of a broken heart, as pictured in religious art and literature, certainly. The idea that he died of a broken heart when he had such a courageous heart is offensive to me. He didn't die of a broken heart. He died because his blood was shed by a spear that went through his heart because he was a courageous man and he would not have died in time according to the Jewish concept and idea of keeping the Sabbath. We can safely place our confidence and our trust in him because of his courage, because he is the creator and sustainer of all things and he gives us the courage to face the trials and the difficulties, he's been there before us, and he will lead us through. All of those hardships and difficulties that are coming upon the earth, we can thank God that through his mercy, he has offered us a way out or through them according to his purpose and his plan. God is great in his mercy.